The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody today. If you're new to Common Ground, uh, Amol is here and also Patricia. Where's Patricia sitting? Somewhere around. Oh, back in the corner. So you could connect with them at the end and ask any questions or come up and say hi to me if you want to introduce yourselves. It's always nice to meet people who are showing up for the first time. We know, I think we all know, that it's not always easy to walk into a new space. And so I'm just grateful that you found a way to get here. And hopefully these teachings, these practices will be useful for you. Common Ground's been here since 1993, not in this building. We were a few blocks away for the first 15 years or so, and we've been here now for 10 years. And um, as I'm going to talk about tonight, or today rather, and just continuing our conversation from last Sunday, a lot of what we do at the center is, and really just following in the footsteps of the Buddha, who in his own way was interested in how the mind is involved in suffering. You know, we always want to, you know, the habit is to locate the cause for suffering out there. You know, people in our lives, the boss, the politicians, the whatever. And clearly, you know, they are imperfect people, a lot like we are all imperfect people, you know, with our own conditioning, our mind, our heart conditioned by culture, and we all know, hopefully we all know how imperfect cultural conditioning has been. And here we are. And part of waking up, having a more clear, balanced view or connection with the way it is, and in particular the way the mind is, the way the heart is, is we start to see the connection between how the mind is relating and the arising of stress or suffering in our lives. And then out of that stress comes unskillful actions and words. So then we mess up other people's lives as well as our own, right? Because we're acting out the conditioning of our mind. So part of learning how to turn this whole feedback loop of suffering around is really twofold. One is we have to stabilize present moment awareness because we need that tool. We need that capacity to see clearly, right? And to be able to see clearly, we need a balanced mind, stable mind, a mind that's not being provoked into agitated states. And then we use that balanced mind to observe the mind for the most part. And we also learn by observing other people's minds indirectly. Right? Because we can learn a lot about the causes for stress observing others, but even more so observing our own mind, right? Seeing <coughs> in real life, in the present moment, like how our mind is planting seeds of stress by how it's seen, by how it's being in the moment. And so one of the things that uh in a way, it's a, it's a real threshold in Buddhist awareness practice is when we have enough stability of present moment awareness to begin to observe thinking. 
Because normally when thinking is happening, the mind gets seduced, gets identified with the content of the thoughts, and then we say, you know, we're lost in thoughts. It takes uh, enough stability of present moment awareness, enough balance to realize thoughts are just thoughts. I don't think I read this last week. This is the opening passages from the, this collection of verses called the Dhammapada. It's a pretty well-known collection of verses um, in the Buddhist tradition, sayings of the Buddha, though scholars will say that some of these sort of wise sayings in this collection are really some of the wisdom culturally at the time of the Buddha, and some are specifically statements from the Buddha. But anyway, this is a very potent um, statement, and it's right at the beginning of this collection, and it goes like this. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, a confused mind you could say, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind, an unconfused mind, a balanced mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. Look how they abused me and beat me, how they threw me down, robbed me. Live with such thoughts and live in hate. Look how they abused me and beat me, how they threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts, right? So don't obsess with those kind of thoughts and live in love. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. So that's sort of interesting, that last part. It doesn't mean that when somebody abuses us, it isn't painful or isn't, doesn't have kind of a long-term effect on the body and the mind, that unresolved pain. All it's saying, the statement is saying that if we allow our mind to spin in a way where we're dividing up our experiences into good and evil and getting agitated, that's not helping ourselves or anybody. The real question is, like, if we have been abused, if we have experienced trauma, the real question is what helps? Does it help to spin with thoughts that are colored by hatred? Does that help? And that's something we can each, each of us check out on our own. Does it help when we fume? I mean, even in terms of politics or other things that might get us fuming, things going on in our families, friends that haven't followed through in the way we think they should follow through, or people at work who have mistreated us, or ways that we've experienced oppression in our lives, sexism, racism, classism, or whatever it might be. And then just notice, like, when it in a way, we feel like we have the right to complain. But within our own heart, within our own life, the question remains, is this spinning, the complaining, or whatever it looks like for you, is it helping? Right? doesn't matter if we have rights to be angry. Does the way we're right now spinning with this content, being caught up in thoughts about this, is it actually helping myself or anybody? 
And only we can look and see whether it's being helpful. And if it's not being helpful, then it doesn't. it's not about like abstractly, if it's wrong, we're wrong to be thinking of it, or we're okay, we're, we have rights to think it. It's really a more pragmatic question. If it's not helping, what does help? Because that's what we really care about, what actually helps. When we've been harmed, hurt, what actually helps? When things are unjust, what actually helps? What's a way to plant seeds of justice, seeds of healing, seeds of uh, you know, moving our families, moving our society, moving our life, our heart in a wholesome direction? What actually helps? And even if we don't have a clue, we can just track and see what helps and doesn't help. The last line is sort of interesting. I mean, there's more to the, the passage or the, this particular chapter goes on, but the next line in particular is interesting. It's very short. It says, you too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? So just understanding the profound impermanence. Thich Nhat Hanh sort of does a riff on this. He's a very well-known uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk, has written up quite a bit and has taught for a long time in the West, ever since he got kicked out of Vietnam in the late 60s because of being a peace activist. Um, He's been mostly in the West teaching, and uh, he has a line similar to this, uh, you know, where you, when you're in, like, I think it was in the context of arguing with your partner, but it could be really in any context of an argument with someone at work or, just imagine them 200 years from now, you know, ashes, rotting flesh, or whatever. It's like really hard to be angry when we know that it's just a matter of time before this person dies, right? And how challenging that often is for people, especially for people who haven't spent a lot of their life developing wisdom, right? So if there's a particular person who's pushing your buttons now, just take a few seconds and remember that, yeah, it's just a matter of time before they get sick and the body dies and they don't exist and even the memories of this person start fading away in a few hundred years, what remains of this person? And and what that does is, it's interesting about anger, it needs a target. It's really hard to be angry if our mind hasn't imagined that, that that person is a sort of permanent entity deserving of my hatred, but when we recall that whatever they are, whoever they are, is a impermanent, changing, eventually passing away phenomena, it's just a little bit, if not a lot harder, to sustain the anger and the circular, you know, the endless, obsessive, blaming, hating. And we can then get in this more pragmatic state of, oh, I'm hurting. What helps? What? How might I relate to this pain? What might I do that can bring healing for myself and others? Right? It's really that pragmatic question. So just uh, as I mentioned last week, we're going to take some time and really 
dig in because it's such a central part of our our a mindfulness practice or Buddhist awareness practice because one of the, you know, in a sense, the big gorilla in the room almost all the time is thinking. You know, whenever we have the inclination to be in the present moment, we're going to notice that the, that particular part of the mind that thinks is thinking. And initially, because we misunderstand the practice as meditation practice or mindfulness practice as get me to calm, I want calm, I want tranquility, then thinking is always going to seem like the enemy, like in the way of calm. Because it's pretty easy for us to have that initial insight that uh, agitation is often co- or often correlates with thinking. One of the unmistakable experiences we have when, when people are able to go on longer Buddhist retreats where we're in silence and we're doing a lot of sitting and walking meditation and the schedule's pretty simple. There's not much going on. Our cell phones are completely off. We're not reading the news or reading much of anything. And because we're not talking, it's like very clear the effect of the thinking mind. So we have maybe we have some momentum of just being in the present moment, being with the walking, being with the breathing, being with the present moment phenomena. And then some little mental storm arises. We remember something difficult from the past, or we get excited about some ideas about the future. But whatever that little mental storm is, the mind takes the bait, and it gets caught in some obsessive pattern for a while. It just keeps thinking, thinking, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe even most of a couple hours, where we're just in that loop. You know, this is when, when I get home off of this retreat, I'm going to fix my life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make these changes and ask this person to marry me or ask this person to leave me alone. Or, you know, and we create these castles in the sky, you know, this sort of perfect future for ourselves. And then at some point, wisdom will just naturally kick in, whether it's in five minutes or in two hours or who, who knows when. And wisdom, what does wisdom see? Oh, that's just a bunch of thinking. And the other thing wisdom sees, notices, is how entangled energetically, physically, the body has gotten in the endless or the almost endless spinning. And it really hurts. And we really notice that in the context of being on a retreat where the mind is much more sensitive, you really feel the karmic fruit, the effect of having been obsessively spinning. Whereas in normal life, we tend not to notice it because we're already a lot tight. And so if we do something that makes the body-mind tight, it doesn't stand out as much. But if we've been experiencing at least some tranquility, some ease in the body and mind, and then we get caught up in some obsessive loop for some period of time, and then we notice that that's been happening, and we drop back into the body and notice the mood or quality of the mind, And then we see the damage that's been done. And it brings up this very appropriate flavor of wisdom that we call in the Buddhist tradition wholesome regret and wholesome concern. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. That did not help at all. You know, obsessing for the last hour. Like, I did not need to think that. And this, what I'm feeling right now, is the natural consequence of having been caught up in thought. And it could be something simple. 
like going through a catalog. Oh, I like that. I want that. I don't want that. You know, or nowadays on some websites, it's sort of the 10 things you really need to buy. You know, it's like, oh, the 10 things you'll need for the summer if you travel. The 10 things you need if you travel a lot. The 10 things you need in your kitchen. The 10 best recipes. You know, the 10 most interesting articles. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm always interested in what I'm missing. (laughs) And then, you know, we start building a new life, being the person who has some of those 10 things, right? And it's like the new and improved me, because I've got these new things that are going to... And even if we can't initially figure out, like, how would I use that? It's like, it's an interesting project for our mind. And the thing is, when we're in any obsessive pattern... There's always the natural consequence, and this is why the body and mind are under the surface, because on the surface it's very juicy. That's what feeds the obsessive thinking. But under the juicy surface is that crunch, that entanglement. Because in order for something to look very appealing, some future, some, you know, whatever about the past, fixing the past, imagining the future, whatever the kind of thinking is about, is a rejection of the here and now. Because this is not okay because this is so exciting. That can't be exciting without the present moment being insufficient. And so then energetically, not consciously, we're not aware that we're doing it, there's a rejection, a negation of the present moment. And that's felt in the body and mind. That's the crunch or that's what in Buddhism we call dukkha, the, the crunch, the squeeze on the heart. That's one of the better definitions of dukkha I've heard from a Thai force master, the squeeze on the heart. Right? And we, if we're sensitive, we see, oh yeah, this squeeze is the direct, this has been fed, this has been shaped by that obsessive thinking, and it feels like this. And we start really caring about it. And it really arises not so much from the thought, but from, in Buddhism we sometimes say, attempting to feed on the thought. That attachment, that identification or dependence. But it's feeding is actually a better phrase for what that looks and feels like when the mind is thinking with attachment. Because we're really trying to get something from the thinking. Like, if only I think hard enough, deeply enough, continuously enough, I'll get some certainty, I'll get some place, right? So that's what we want to look at when we wake up and notice that our mind is obsessing, thinking. It's very important not to notice the content, what the mind is thinking about, But instead, it's much more useful to notice that sense that the mind is trying to extract something, to get something from the thinking. It's more energetic, it's more emotional, and it's unpleasant. The attachment identification, this is your your cheat sheet, like how you're going to be able to see it because... I'm sure you've noticed being mindfully mindfully aware of thinking is very slippery. Thinking is very seductive. 
So we think, oh yeah, I'm mindful of thinking, but that lasts for about a second and a half, and then we're lost in the thought again. And we can do this indefinitely, where we feel like our resolve, our intention is right, that, oh yeah, I just want to be aware, thinking is just thinking, but we're just lost in thought very quickly. So the way to avoid just one more time the mind taking the bait is to realize the energetic feeding because it's unpleasant. And the unpleasantness is a more stable present moment object to be aware of. So here's the trick, right? And this is important because, again, it can save us, just to be provocative, many lifetimes of being lost in thought but certainly many decades of being lost in thought, right? That when we notice we've been lost in thought, so that we sort of like we've been drowning in the obsessive pattern, but somehow wisdom comes to the fore and there's some space in the mind that realizes I'm lost in thought. I'm totally caught. I feel that tug. And I think I mentioned this last Sunday morning. It's a little bit like when you've been in a really juicy dream. It could be even a horrific dream. It's not always the pleasant dreams. And then we wake up. Maybe your partner moves or for whatever reason you wake up and you noticed, you remember that you've been dreaming and what does the mind want to do? Go back into the dream, right? So it's like there's a pull. The, the mind has been, even scary dreams, even painful, obsessive thinking, the mind is feeding on the drama feeding on the intensity, feeding on the sense of a me who's somehow enmeshed, involved in the content. And we have to notice the unpleasantness of that feeding, the dependence, the attachment, grasping, clinging, these are words we use, that viscerally point to the unpleasantness of how the mind is relating to the content. So it's almost never about the content, past, future, fantastical, ordinary thoughts. It's not about the content. It's really about whether the mind is feeding, trying to get something, trying to get some ground, some nutriment out of the thinking. Oh, and that always feels like a little crunch, energetic tension, heart being tight, gut being tight. Oh. This hurts like this. Well, can that be okay? See, we have to make peace. Otherwise, we're going to want to think about why it hurts or think about how to stop it from hurting. But the deal is to make peace with the crunch, the squeeze. Oh, yeah, having been lost in thought feels like this. Can it be okay that the body, mind, heart is tight? like this, hurts like this, entangled like this, feeling the pull to go back, but refraining because there's wisdom that knows better. Honey, you do not need to think that anymore. You've just spun with that for two hours. Interestingly, interesting that you want think, that would be helpful to think again, that again, right? Like that is quite literally insane. But yet that is the pattern of the mind. Uh, in a very graphic way, a long-time student here at Comgon said, it's like dogs, when they vomit, want to go back and smell the vomit, right? It's a pretty graphic image. But it's a little bit like that, how the, the mind, not knowing any better, 
is magnetically attracted to intensity. Even when getting lost in the intensity isn't helping. And we really see it, I don't know about you, but I I see it in myself, I see it in a lot of people around me, hear about it when people come and meet with me around politics and social issues these days. That it doesn't mean, I mean, clearly the world needs folks to be showing up with some balance and some wisdom and some fearlessness. But what the world doesn't need is like a pinball machine, you know, where every, you know, momentary news cycle is just pushing us around and kind of reactivating our rage, right? And then what happens is we get exhausted. We don't actually have the balance or energy to do what can be done, like vote or, you know, whatever it is that however people feel moved to respond to injustice or the um, ignorance that seems to be driving a lot of what happens in the world. So this is the thing. It's not about disengagement. It's about grounding into the reality in a more balanced, nimble, responsive way. And I think this is what really ruins or undermines the health of our families, the health of our organizations and communities and society is we get fried, we get burnt out. And then the only thing we have sort of space for is very simplistic good versus evil, you know? And we're caught in that intense cycle of like feeding, like we're literally feeding on the juiciness of good versus evil. So many of our novels and books and and uh, news articles and gossips, gossipings are and this very like simplistic level of good versus evil. And I think it's pretty safe to say that reality is not good versus evil, that, that that's just not nuanced enough. It's just too simplistic. And that framing things as good versus evil perpetuates itself, right? Because only the dramatic flavor of good versus evil seems worthy of paying attention to. And anything more complex or nuanced, it's like too complex to nuance. No juice there. Why would I read that article? Why would I have that conversation? Why would I get involved as an activist in a more nuanced issue You know that, that requires sort of a more uh, careful, uh, long-term, nuanced approach? I just want to burn something down you know, burn the evil one. That's what we feel. I mean, I, I'm just speaking about my own mind and how I've been noticed my own mind in these, in these places and how unhelpful that seems. So a lot of what we're doing then in that moment when the mind, and this isn't just in our sits, of course, both in our sits and in daily life, and we realize the mind's been lost in thought, we realize it feels like this, and then after doing that a number of times, you know, like uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote that book, I'm forgetting the title, he's written a number of wonderful books, but one is this, like, what makes somebody a master, like really skilled at something? It's like, well, you have to do it 10,000 times, and then you become. So when you really see clearly, it isn't enough to sort of wake wake up out of an obsessive pattern, but you're waking up out of it 
with wisdom is there, right? The mind is balanced and interested. Oh, what just happened? What's happening now? And really learning. And then the mind, like if it does that enough times, it really begins to distill when thinking is being driven by greed, wanting, craving, ill will, hating, fearing, and basic delusion, not really like being on the surface or pretending that we know when we're just on the surface, right? But imagining that we're certain, for example, that's delusion. When the mind is driven by these things, you know, a willingness to hate, a willingness to harm, justify harm, willingness to grip, even though everything's impermanent, you know, the whole think we're going to get something that will finally last, take care of us forever, nothing does. So this is, we see, oh yeah, this is, it's these three qualities, these three intentions that always lead the heart to being entangled and that ouch, the suffering of that kind of stressful entanglement. But there are other thoughts that don't really leave a negative trace. Like the Buddha, so interestingly, maybe next week I'll share this sutta um, for those of you who want to look it up, it's in the middle link discourses number 19. Often it gets translated as two kinds of thought, the title of this discourse from the Buddha. But he's basically talking about these two kinds of thoughts. Some thoughts don't leave a trace. So when I'm thinking thoughts of compassion and kindness, caring about myself and others, not wanting to harm, wanting to be generous, appreciating being content with what I have, and then I'm done, or I catch that I'm thinking those thoughts, there's not a lot of that crunch in the heart. Still, thinking is thinking, and it will eventually tire the mind, the Buddha says in this discourse, but there's no neurotic reverberation when we're thinking thoughts of compassion and kindness, renunciation and generosity. Those sort of thoughts do not leave a crunch in the heart. And so, feel free to think those thoughts. You don't need to neurotically try to abandon those thoughts. But if you're thinking thoughts that are driven by hate or fear or greed, lust, or willingness to harm, justifying harming others, well, when you look, you'll see, oh yeah, the trace that those thoughts lead, I'm really motivated to catch them sooner, to abandon them more quickly, basically to do whatever I have to do to not perpetuate that obsessive thinking, including, and we'll get to this discourse by the end of this sequence of talks on working with the thinking mind. Uh, I think it's another discourse from the middle-length collection of talks from the Buddha, uh, sometimes translated as working with distracting thoughts. But when all, all else fails, and I'll end here, the Buddha says, you crush mind with mind. And it's like, when you see that your mind is involved in thinking that's not helping you or anybody, then try whatever you can try, but if nothing works, you kind of get in there as a, as a parent, you know, with a, uh, a preteen maybe. I don't know if you could do this with a teenager. They have more power at least raw physical power than you do. But like with a preteen, you know, you say, you know, I don't care what you think at this point. I'm not going to let you 
drink and drive, something obvious like that. You know, it's like, I'm not, you know, you're, I'm not going to give you the keys. I'm not going to let you out the door, you know, like I'm putting my foot down. And we have to do that not that often. It's like, that's the last resort. Ideally, you would have been working with your kid all along since they were one and a half or whatever, you know, to kind of have a relationship where it wouldn't get to where you're using your physical presence, your kind of raw power, to kind of keep that person safe. But when all else fails, I'm not a parent, but wouldn't you who are parents have stepped in front of the door, put your keys, you know, wherever you would put them? (laughs) Of course you would, because the alternative is unacceptable. And that's the same thing. We get to that place with our thoughts sometimes where we'll try anything. It's like, I'm going to go drive across town to be with this friend because I don't trust myself with my mind right now. And I need that distraction. I need to be with my friend. It's weird, but I'm going to spend the night with them. Or whatever you might have to do. You know, call a friend in the middle of the night. Or do whatever works. I mean, it's pragmatic. But the last thing we're willing to do is just allow the mind to dig a hole and fall into it. Why would we give up? So basically that last instruction is, it never makes sense to give up. It never makes sense to let the mind do something that you that wisdom already knows isn't going to help you or anybody. Because keeping in mind that that's not helpful, even if you don't have any strategies, is helpful, right? Staying in, I don't know if battle's the right word there, but like staying engaged. And I think this is makes sense too, just in terms of our society. Like, you know, whether you take global warming or issues around class and poverty and economic injustice or racism, even if you have a sense that, you know, it's centuries before this is fixed or maybe it's just going to get worse, But it still makes sense to stay engaged, right? Because maybe we buy a few more years before total environmental collapse. Or we alleviate some suffering in terms of criminal justice uh, suffering or racism, the suffering of racism. That although we we don't imagine it's going to go away, we can reduce the suffering maybe to some degree. It still makes sense to stay engaged. And to be enlivened by the engagement, right? There's some freedom and knowing we don't have to give up. Giving up is completely deadening. Helplessness is not a strategy for living a happy life. So I'll leave it here. Time for maybe one or two comments or questions that might come to mind. Any thoughts about what I've said today or about your own practice around working with thinking that comes to mind? you'd like to share with the group? What have you been learning working with your own mind? Yeah, please, Becca. It's like you wrote this talk for my 3 a.m. for the last two weeks. So this is perfect. Um, But the question that came up for me was about the right use of the mind. Like the way you described it as being kind of hungry and feeding is, is so on point. But I've been curious about how to use it in a way to 
to work through something, you know, like some, and that's where I feel like I get stuck is I, I can't discern what needs to be left alone and what actually needs some thinking, yeah. what actually needs some time and, and how to do that thinking in a way that isn't voracious, that doesn't yeah. spin into that piece. And so that's discernment is the word that's coming to mind, but what's the right use for the mind yeah. in that way? And that's a perfect question. And we'll dig into that next week because we'll look at that. <laughs> look, look, 3 a.m. comes early, so I'm going to need an answer. I'll yeah. see you afterwards. But, but the short answer is like, ask yourself this question. Can I think this content with com- out of the um, attitude of compassion, out of the attitude of kindness, out of the attitude of letting go? So can I... Because it is, you're absolutely right, thinking is a very powerful tool for clarifying a choice, for example, that needs to be made, right? So, but how can I do it not out of fear, not motivated by fear, but motivated by compassion and kindness? Because you probably can. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that great question. Great. Thanks for coming, everyone. Have a good weekend. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.